And so please open up your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, as we continue to look at a different psalm as we move uh, through the summer. Uh, psalm 103 is a text that is attributed to David, like many of the psalms are. And you, you can see that um, in uh, the, just above verse 1 in your Bible. There's a little title there that says, Of David. And uh, that, that title is probably beneath the title provided by the ESV, which probably says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Just under that is the title of David, which is part of the Hebrew text. And so we know this is a psalm of David. But we're not giving anything, any other details. We don't know any other circumstances or specifics about Psalm 103, when it was written, why it was written. Um, you know, some commentators point out that it's one of David's least personal psalms. So he doesn't say anything about being harassed or oppressed or betrayed by any of his enemies, nor does he mention any specific sins of his. So it's not very personal, it's more general. So as one commentator puts it, David is speaking for us all in Psalm 103. What David does, though, is primarily speak to himself. In this psalm, you're going to see David primarily takes himself by the hand and he preaches to himself preaches to his own soul all that is within him. So a fair summary of this psalm is that David gives himself and us as we listen in reasons why his heart and his soul should praise God for all the many blessings at all times and in all places. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at Psalm 103 with three headings. 
We'll look at God's benefits in verses 1 to 5, God's love in verses 6 to 14, and God's greatness in verses 15 to 22. So God's benefits, God's love, and God's greatness. So first, his benefits. Look with me at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And so one of the things you may notice at the beginning is that Psalm 103 is not, it's not a prayer. That David is not addressing God, that he's addressing his own soul, his own heart, all that is within him. That David seems to be wrestling with his own heart and soul to move himself to a place spiritually where he's ready and willing and able to, 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 to bless and praise God with joy for all that God has done and is doing for him. It begins with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And that's exactly how Psalm 103, verse 22 ends. That exact same line, bless the Lord, O my soul. And by bless, David means to praise, to express joyful gratitude to God. Commentator Alan Ross says the fact that David exhorts his own soul to bless indicates that he will bless with his whole being, his whole spiritual being, his will, his reason, his affections. Soul is paralleled here with everything inside me. So that's what David is, is exhorting himself to do with all that's in him. And so look at me at verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I mean, what, what a great verse. So on the one hand, I mean, how can we forget any of God's benefits and blessings? And yet, this verse, I mean, it's an acknowledgement that we too often do, don't we? That we too often overlook God's blessings and his many benefits in our lives. You know, past, present, promises about the future. And why is that the case? We can often forget. We often overlook. And what verse 2 is saying is, David to himself is, stop forgetting. Stop overlooking. Stop ignoring. Stop losing sight of the many ways that God has and is blessing you. Of course, there are always issues and problems and things that, that are burdening us and bothering us. But what David's saying to himself is, David... Lift your eyes, lift your gaze above your present circumstances, and, and forget not all of God's benefits. And I think that phrase, forget not all his benefits, is another way of saying, remember every single one of his benefits. Don't overlook any of them. And start living and praying and obeying in light of these benefits. As the hymn puts it, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Now, and of course, there's a long list of, of, of ways that, uh, that God has blessed us and all of his many benefits. And in some ways, Psalm 103 recounts them over and over and over again. But the next few verses, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, provide a summary of what these benefits are. And you're going to notice that the, the word who, uh, that pronoun who, appears over and over and over again in verses 3, 4, and 5. But, but David's not asking a question he knows who the who is, and he's connecting who back to his good God and his many benefits and blessings. And so the first benefit that we are not to forget is there is forgiveness for our sins. Look at verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity? 
Right? We have so many reasons to praise God with joyful gratitude. We have our families, our friends, our homes, our jobs, our, our wealth, our health. But David begins where we all should begin. And that is praising God for the forgiveness of our sins, for all our sins. And there's more that David's going to say about forgiveness of all our sins and the, the, the greatness of God's love and his grace for us later in the psalm. But notice that the text here in verse 3 doesn't say the, refer to the God who forgave all our sin, past tense, but the God who forgives. The David's stressing, the text is stressing the ongoing nature of the forgiveness of God. The God who forgives and forgives and forgives. But second, we see in the, in the latter part of verse 3, the God who heals all your diseases. Now, you may look at that and you think, well, yeah, but Richard, people became sick in David's day, and Christians still get sick today, right? Christians still get sick, and, and, and in this fallen world, die from sickness. I mean, even just this past week, I heard of a, you know, of a church member's grandson, teenage grandson, who got sick and died. So what can this verse mean if, we're not all, if we are not always literally healed of all our diseases? Well, the verb to heal can be used to refer to physical healing or spiritual healing. And perhaps thinking about the, how this is paired with forgive all our iniquities and heal all, all our diseases, right there beside each other, it's possible that David has in mind primarily spiritual healing. Or perhaps David is reminding us of the glorious truth that, that one day God will remove all of our suffering, that one day he will heal all of our diseases. Or maybe David has in mind that we ought to remember each and every time we are healed, as we often are, that no matter the skill of the doctors and the nurses or the, the power of the medicine that we're taking, that it's always God who heals us. And we can easily forget that and overlook that. And David says, forget not all his benefits. Thirdly, we see in verse 4 that God redeems our lives from the pit. Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? So the pit refers to uh, the pit of destruction, as we sang in the, the hymn earlier, or the, the pit of death. And David's point is that, a point that the Bible makes in many places, is that every person either is still dead in their trespasses and sins, or we were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins, right? That, that's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2.1, and writing to these Christians in Ephesus, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. So how are we rescued from the pit, the pit of death? How are we rescued from the, the, the death of our sins? Well, it, it's through Christ. It's by God's grace that God makes us alive together with Christ, that we are born again, that we're given new hearts, that we are raised to walk in, in newness of life. And so with that in mind, look, look back at Psalm 103, verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? You see, whenever we were saved by God's grace, God redeemed us, delivered us, rescued us from the pit of death and misery into which our sin originally cast us, and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Eternal life, which begins now and extends out to eternity. And one day, for those of us who know Christ, 
Those of us who will one day die in the Lord, we will be raised from the grave and we will share in Christ's glorious resurrection. But looking at Psalm 103 verse 4, notice that God's redemption not only lifts us from the pit, not only cleanses us from our sin, washes us clean as wonderful as that is, but God goes further and the verse says, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. That he crowns us. I mean, just lifting us from the pit would be wonderful enough, but he goes further and he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And so in studying for this sermon, one pastor, he thought about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You guys remember that parable that there's the younger brother and the older brother, the younger brother uh, demands his inheritance from his father and he takes it and he goes off to the far country and he squanders it in wild living he ends up broke and he ends up starving. He's got nowhere else to turn. And so he decides, I'm going to go back home. And maybe, just maybe, I can beg and plead with my dad and he will allow me to, to join his staff as a hired worker, as a servant. You know, just above a slave, but certainly not a son. And he begins to head back home. But what he wasn't counting on was his father was waiting for him. And while he was still a, a long way off, his father saw him and he runs to him. And he embraces him and hugs him and kisses him. And then he says what? Put shoes on my son's feet, bring a robe, and put a ring on his finger, and we're going to throw a party for him. It's not just that he's back and we're not going to hold against him, but we're going to crown him, in a sense, with this love and mercy. And so with that in mind, with all of verse 4 in mind, Pastor Richard Phillips says that David puts these blessings of being redeemed from the pit crowned with love and mercy together to show that while sin has dragged us to the pit, salvation elevates us to the highest honors as children and heirs of God. Then fourthly, we see that God satisfies and sustains us. Look at verse 5. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, this verse doesn't mean that Christians will never be discouraged, never be weary, never be worn out doesn't mean they'll, they'll never grow old. I mean, I can tell you're not growing old, but, but it doesn't mean that Christians will never grow old, they will never experience hardship, never have significant need, but it is a promise and an assurance that we find throughout the Bible. That whenever we trust in the Lord and we trust in his word, that God provides for us, that he does satisfy us, that he does sustain us. In another one of David's psalms, Psalm 37, verse 4, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think that's very similar to God will, our God is the one who satisfies us with the good. Or last weekend at Mo Ranch, we looked at uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. And a section there from verse 13 to 15 says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, Jesus says that the living water that I can give you and only I can give you is satisfying. And the woman says, give it to me. Right, and that phrase, welling up, it means leap up. 
leaping of. And so Jesus says that spiritual life found in a saving relationship with him is so alive and dynamic and energetic and powerful that it not only satisfies a person's thirst, but it keeps leaping up. It keeps welling up and it keeps pouring out in a way that nothing else in this world can match. That he satisfies us with the good. So how, I mean, how many times do we have to keep hearing the empty promises and believing the empty promises that the world makes to us that if we have that, if we have this, we have this person or this possession or we have this experience or we go here or we go there, we finally accomplish this, then finally, finally, our thirst will be quenched. Finally, we'll be satisfied. How many times do we have to hear these promises, which are empty promises, before we realize not only do they not satisfy our thirst, but they leave us even thirstier than we were before. You know, it's, it's, I shared this quote with you a couple of weeks ago, but in, in, in his confessions, Augustine said that God has formed us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. So think about what David says in Psalm 103, God promises to bless his people, including you, with rest, satisfaction, renewal, and to sustain you to live for his glory in this fallen world. And God's blessings and benefits also include, as we've already seen, the forgiveness of all our sins, spiritual healing, redemption from the pit, and being crowned with, with love and mercy. And what David is saying to himself and saying to us in verse 2, at the beginning of this psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He says, stop forgetting Stop ignoring, stop overlooking all of these blessings. Forget not all of them. Do not forget even one of them. Count your blessings one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. The second heading for Psalm 103 is God's love. And this is a big section. David spends a lot of time dwelling upon God's love. He's going to think about the proof of God's love, the measure of God's love. Then he gives us an illustration of God's love. So thinking about God's love, the proof of God's love, look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So David here is taking us back, taking himself back, and taking us back along for the ride, back to the Exodus story, whenever God made known his ways to Moses. And, and if you remember, if you've been with us this summer, we've looked at fairly random psalms, psalms that I haven't preached before, that we haven't preached in a long time here. And yet we see many times that these psalms, whether it's a psalm of David or other psalmists, that they make mention of the Exodus story. They keep going back and keep going back, and rightfully so, right? Because the Exodus story is the, the paradigmatic act of redemption and salvation in the Old Testament, right? When God's people enslaved in Egypt cry out to him for mercy, for salvation, for redemption, and God sends a deliverer in Moses, and he sends the plagues, and there's the Passover, and there's the parting of the Red Sea. And throughout the Exodus, God proved his love for his people. But do you remember what, what the Bible says about why God loved the Israelites? It wasn't because they were so wonderful. It wasn't because they were worthy. He loved them because he, he loved them. Listen to what we read in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right? God loved his people because he chose to love them. That he loved them not because they were worthy, not because they performed well, but because he chose to set his love on them. And so keep that in mind. Okay, And look now at Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, this is a verse we're going to talk a lot about because this is a verse that first appears in Exodus 34, verse 6. Okay, Exodus 34, verse 6. I'm going to come back to that context in just a moment because this verse was first said by God as he passed by Moses just after the, the golden calf worship service in Exodus 32. We're going to come back to it. But then it echoes, though, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Right? We see it here in Psalm 103, verse 8. David also quotes it in at least two other Psalms, Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 145, verse 8. We see it in two of the prophets, Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, and then we see it in Nehemiah 9, verse 17. So it repeats over and over and over again, so much so that it's been said that, that this verse, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, almost becomes a, a creedal statement to answer the question throughout the Old Testament as, of what is God? You want to know who God is? You want to know what he is like? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, for those of us today, if, if you've in this room, if you were catechized as a Presbyterian child, then someone asks you, what is God? You immediately go to question four, the shorter catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But, but you can argue that for the Old Testament people of God, if they were asked, what is God? They go to Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, think about this, right? After the Exodus, after the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, after God gives his people the Ten Commandments and the law, then this Exodus 32 golden calf worship service happens where the people rebel against God, they, they form their own idol, and they worship it. And then God declares he's going to wipe them out in judgment for this sin, if you remember the story, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, that he's their mediator, and he prays, and he prays for mercy. And what God says in response to Moses' prayer for mercy, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God is proclaiming this is who he is. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that this is God's character. And David calls himself and those in his day to look back to the Exodus story to remember who God is and what he is like. And it was appropriate for them to do that. And it's even appropriate for us 
as the people of God to look back to the Exodus story because their story is, it's our story as well. But where we are now in redemptive history, that we have an even greater display of God's love for sinful and rebellious people to look back to, don't we? That we can look back to the display of God's love, the proof of God's love by sending his son to take on human flesh and to live and to suffer and to die nailed to a cross to pay the full debt of our sins. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or as one pastor put it, the cross is the pulpit of the Father's love. Your Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs says, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, would send his Son to take our nature upon him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows his love. It pleased the Father to break his Son and to pour out his blood, Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be to us. And David goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, that God will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And think about what what these two verses say about our God in contrast to us. Right, we often, we often feed our anger. You know, we often refuse, okay, to, 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 to settle quarrels. That we often do give the devil a foothold, but not God. Our God has been infinitely wronged by us, sinned against by us, but he will not keep his anger forever, nor does he deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That there is grace. Listen again to how Pastor Richard Phillips puts it. On the one hand, God is angry when we sin, and he seeks to bring our hearts to conviction. But God does not berate us constantly, nor does he harbor grudges. Isn't it wonderful to know that God will not harbor resentment toward you for your sins? Awareness of their sins overly depresses many Christians because they assume that God will turn against them permanently. But without making light of our sins themselves... They should cause us to praise God because of his love, which is not overcome even by our transgressions. So David reminds himself of the proof of God's love. And then he turns to reminding himself of the measure of God's love. And so look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. See, what he's saying is, listen, your, your measuring tape is not long enough to measure God's love. It won't reach from the earth below to the, to the heavens above. Why? Because God's love is beyond measure. It's infinite. It's beyond tracing out. It's unsearchable. It's it's limitless. There's no way to measure the, the, the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love. It's what the Apostle Paul prays um, for the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. He prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right. So what is the measure of God's love? Well, the Scripture says it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. 
that God's love, the love of Christ for you, dear Christian, it surpasses knowledge. But then David gives us more measurements. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. See, the next time you're, you're wondering and you're wrestling in your own mind and heart, can I really be forgiven by God? Go back to Psalm 103, verse 12. Read this verse, meditate on it, pray through it. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As one pastor put it, the east and the west are infinitely and absolutely and categorically distant. So far has God removed our sins in Christ. This is the measure of God's love for his people. You know, and then we're given a very vivid picture of this in the Old Testament, specifically uh, in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. The high priest takes two goats. The first goat is sacrificed, and its blood is taken into the tabernacle, into the temple, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled on the mercy seat, that gold-plated lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's sprinkled there to symbolize atonement being made for the sins of the people. And for us who are now in Christ, pointing forward to the atonement that Christ would make, shedding his own blood for us on the cross. But then the second goat was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would put his hands on the head of that goat, and he would pray, symbolically you know, uh, confessing and placing on this goat all the sins of the people. And then that scapegoat, that second goat, was led out to, to the edge of the camp in the wilderness and was released sent out into the desert. And as the people stood there and watched and that goat disappeared from their sight to never ever be seen ever again, it symbolized exactly what David has written in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The question for you, dear believer, is do you believe this is true for you? Do you really believe that's true? I hope you do because it is. I mean, if you're living a life of active rebellion and sin against God, then God in his kindness will chastise you and lead you to repentance. However, if you've confessed your sin, repented of it, then that sin burden, it's it's gone. It really is and truly is gone. And it may very well be one of the hardest truths for you to believe and to embrace, but it is true. That God's not going to bring up your sin again tomorrow or next week or next month or years from now. You've confessed it. You've repented of it. It's gone. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Or as this quote quoted in James Boyce's commentary, When God forgives us, he puts our sin in us on two different horizons. So when he looks at our sin, he's no longer looking at us. When he looks at us, he's no longer looking at our sin. To use the vocabulary of Paul, he has justified us. Right, so we're thinking about what justification means. Yes, it means that we've been forgiven of our sin, our sin washed away, cleansed of our sin. But, and praise God for that, we've been pardoned. But it means more than that. It's not just that we've been cleansed of our sin, but it means that Christ's righteousness is now ours, been imputed to us, credited to us. That we're not only washed clean, but we're also clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness. 
And so we see here the proof of God's love, the measure of God's love, and then lastly, he gives us this illustration of God's love in verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Simply put, God knows us better than we know ourselves. An illustration is just as a father or mother, a good parent, knows each of their children well, God knows us. Right? Just as good parents know their children's strength and weaknesses, just as a, and as a good parent's heart goes out to their children in their, in their, frail, in their frailty, in their weaknesses, in their needs, you know, each and every one of us, we are frail and we're needy before our God and he loves us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That your God sees your sin to its darkest bottom and he loves you to the highest heaven and his love for you is, is infinite. And that he has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And he wraps you in his compassion and mercy. He not only forgives you, but he credits you with Christ's righteousness and he adopts you into his family. That you are his child. He's your father and he loves you. So David's preaching all of this stuff to himself. You know, forget not all of God's benefits. And he begins to go into detail about God's love. And then here at the very end of the psalm, he turns to God's greatness. And in this final section, God's greatness, he talks about first man's frailty, and then he contrasts that with God's greatness and God's glory. So at the very end of verse 14, it says, God remembers that we are dust. And then verses 15 and 16 say, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. Right? We're made in the image of God, and God loves us. It's made very clear throughout this psalm, but we're frail, and we're mortal, and we're transitory. And just as the, the grass and the flowers flourish in all their glory, and they're beautiful for a time, there comes a time whenever they fade. And the wind blows it all away. And it's gone. And soon forgotten. Like parts of my yard. And the same is true, the same is true for all of us. We might not like to think it, about it that way, but it's truer than not. And one, one, a simple test to remember that, remember how quickly, how we are here today, gone tomorrow, our frailty, how transitory we are, our weakness. Think for a minute about your grandparents and grandparents. Okay, my guess is all of us in this room, most of us in this room, can, we could write down right now the names of our grandparents. Okay, but what about their grandparents? I mean, they, for some of us, they lived a long time ago. For others of us, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, these are just our grandparents' grandparents, and we don't know their names. Some of us have never even thought to even ask their names or where they lived or their stories. So listen again to Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Image bearers of God, and God dearly loves us. But we are frail, and we're weak, and we're transitory. We're finite. 
And now David's going to compare us to our God and his greatness and his glory. Look at verses 17 to 19. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He goes from here today, gone tomorrow, fades and then it's gone, soon to be forgotten, to everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Right, we're finite, frail, transitory, but not our God. Our God is infinite. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. It has no beginning and no end. God loved you, dear Christian, before the creation of the world. And he will never, ever, ever stop loving you for all eternity. And we see in verse 19 that God's throne is established, is fixed, is unmovable. It's never tottering. It's never in jeopardy. So what you think for a moment, okay? Whenever you bow your head, close your eyes, and are about to pray... Who is the God that you're praying to? What do you think about him? Whenever you're getting ready to open your Bible and to begin your personal Bible study, you know, what do you think about God? Whenever you're coming into the sanctuary, you're waiting on the call to worship, what do you think about God when you think about him? Or maybe let me change the question a little bit. How often do you think of God's greatness? The gap between our creator and us the creature. I mean, we've made much of God's love for us this morning, and we should. The Bible makes much of God's love for us, his amazing and infinite, you know, unsearchable, beyond tracing out love for us. But don't miss, the same God who loves us with an infinite love is also a great and glorious God whose throne is established in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It's the same God. And keeping both his amazing love for us and his greatness and his glory and his power and his sovereignty and his bigness, keeping those thoughts together and how that God still loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to live for us so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That has the ability to transform the way that we pray, the way we read our Bibles, the way we worship, the way we live. And we need, I think we need to recover both of these, but especially this view of a big, great, and glorious God. Listen to this quote from author Jerry Bridges. It's from his book, Practice of Godliness. He says, In our day, we must begin to recover a sense of awe and profound reverence for God. We must begin to view Him once again in the infinite majesty that alone belongs to Him, who is the creator and supreme ruler of the entire universe. There is an infinite gap in worth and dignity between God the creator and man the creature, even though man has been created in the image of God. The fear of God is a heartfelt recognition of this gap, not a put-down of man, not a put-down of man whom God loves with an unsearchable, immeasurable, infinite love, but an exaltation of God. And so with this in mind, we come to the very last part of this psalm, and Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, David's song here at the end of Psalm 103 is no solo. For all creation is singing or will sing with him, but his voice, like every other voice, 
has its own part to add, its own benefits to celebrate, and its own access to the attentive ear of God. And we're going to hear in just a moment, David calls the angels and all the Lord's hosts and all the ministers and all of God's works, all that God has created, all of creation, to join in singing this song of blessing the Lord. And so listen to this conclusion. Verses 20 to 22. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Right, Blessing and praising God with gratitude and joy from our hearts, from all that's within us, it should be so natural to us, but it's not. And we often don't drift into doing it. And so what David says, we need to take ourselves by the hand. And we need to preach to our own hearts. And so today, if you feel, if you find the affections of your heart cold toward the God who made you, who redeemed you, who loves you enough to send his one only son to take on flesh, to live a perfect sinless life, to suffer, bleed, die on the cross, to save you from your sin, then do what David does in Psalm 103 and preach this good news to yourself. Preach to yourself the need to count your many blessings and to name them one by one. For as David begins in this psalm, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So please join me to asking God to help us to do that. Father, you are our God from whom all blessings flow. Lord, help us to count these many blessings, to name them one by one. You know, as we're about to sing that if we are looking for these blessings, with your help, we will see how great your faithfulness to us is. And by morning, morning by morning, new mercies will we see. It'll be very apparent to us that all we've ever needed, that your hand has provided. Help us not to lose sight of all your benefits. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.